Welcome to the Composer Studio Podcast. On the Composer Studio, we listen to the music of living composers. We talk to them about their writing process, and we learn about the world of music that they live and work in. I'm Tarek Iridella. And I'm Anna Linville. Today, our guest is award-winning composer Douglas Nians, perhaps best known for his large works for orchestra. A prolific composer, he has written 12 concertos, and his vocal and choral music has been performed at major music festivals and venues around the world. Welcome to uh, the Composer Studio, Douglas. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really honored. We are so glad to have you and glad that you were listening. It's really amazing to, to hear from people who are listening and, and, and then have a guest interview come out of it. Yeah, you know, I think it must be it must be weird. You know, it's I, I knew a poet once and he said, you know, I'm so happy that you like my poetry. We write this stuff and we put these little books out and you wonder whether anyone ever reads it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit the same, I think, with anything you do. It, it goes out in the world and you just don't know who's tuning into it. Well, we've been listening to your music this week and we've been so impressed and just we're just very excited to talk to you today. Oh, great, so. great. Yeah, you know, one of the things I know that I wanted to talk to you about was your experience in Australia, because I, I am very fond of some Australian composers, and I was wondering if you've been influenced at all by any of the Australian folk music, the Aborigine music, or any of the Australian composers as well, like Skullthorpe or Granger. Well, you know, I've lived half my life in Australia, and I'm a, a dual citizen Um uh, American and Australian. So uh, I did my undergraduate music study in Australia at the Australian National University in Canberra. Uh, and there I, I studied with a very well-known Australian Chinese composer called Larry Sitsky. Through that, that uh, course was exposed to a lot of uh, Australian composers, of course, who, who came through and, and talked to us and so on. Um, that was in, I guess, the 80s. And then after that, I spent some time in the U.S. and then went back uh, to Australia for a job as a head of a conservatory there in Tasmania. And uh, Peter Sculthorpe was Tasmanian. So uh, I met him several times and uh, got to know him in incredibly charming, uh, lovely, sweet, gentle man. You know, we spoke a bit about his fascination with the Australian landscape and uh, Australian Aboriginal music. I had a perhaps more cautious approach uh, to especially Aboriginal music um, because I'm not Aboriginal. <laughs> and so um, it, it made me feel like maybe I was exploiting or appropriating things that weren't naturally my own. And, um, you know, music in, in Aboriginal culture is really sacred thing. So that, that part of, of Skullthorpe's interest didn't interest me so much for that reason, although I respect what he, what he did with it. Um, I'm, I think, more influenced by uh, his relationship and, and one's relationship with the Australian landscape, which is so bizarrely different to uh, America. Um, you know, in, in America, everything is, you know, vibrant green and, uh, you know, summer here is, is so opulent. And 
in Australia, the, the trees are not deciduous mostly. So they, they're the same year round. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a kind of a khaki green colored gum leaf, you know, on the, on the trees. So the atmosphere of the landscape, quite apart from being tremendously ancient, uh, on a day to day basis has this kind of unchanging kind of ancient quality about it too, because there, there aren't really seasons that affect the landscape that tremendously in Australia. So um, that between that and the light being so incredibly different down there, those things affected me quite a lot. Indeed, my, my most recent compositions um, for about the last 10 years uh, have been mostly to do with uh, not so much landscape, but things that are, are a bit more fluid than that, um, mist and smoke and water and air and uh, uh, wind and things like that. So Douglas, you, you were just talking about how you were uncomfortable using Aboriginal music as a kind of source material for your inspiration or your music. Mm. So you consider yourself of European heritage? Well, my long background is uh, my great, great, great grandparents uh, came to America from Germany. Uh, so I have that kind of German heritage or, or yeah. blood or whatever you want to say, bloodline uh, in me, but then also a, a deeply American one too. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, overlaid on that, you know, I went to Australia when I, when I was about 13. So, um, you know, there's, there's a, a quite a, quite a, a mutt like mix of things that, mm -hmm. that contribute to, to what, to what influence me. But yeah, I think that I'm very drawn to, to European music and you know that that was what I, I first knew of as classical music Bach and Beethoven and, and things like that so yeah that's that's pretty deep in me. What is your very first musical memory? Wow um, my first musical memory was a visual memory and we had a record collection and I remember looking at this uh, record cover of Brahms I must have been six, I thought, he is so cool. I just wish I could be like him. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, that's I thought, pretty cool. I don't know why I thought that. Was it and was it a photograph of Brahms with his wild hair? No, it was like a painting on I think one mm. of the you know a, a disc of one of the symphonies or something. And you know my mm -hmm. my parents had it, which is also really bizarre because they had very Catholic kind of eclectic kind of taste. We had everything from musicals to Barbara Streisand to big band music to, you know, everything, you know, in, in my house when Sounds I was Sounds like my up. record collection. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, you know, all of that's a little bit in there. But um, as, when I got serious about music, I was a, a teenager. And um, I think the the first thing I, I heard, we belonged to a kind of a, they used to do these weird clubs that you could belong to that weren't record clubs. They were um, a record came with it, but it was really like profiles of composers. So a kind of booklet came with it and um, a, a history of the composer and then a, a kind of eclectic sampling of uh, all of the, the music of, of, of those composers. And um, I remember this one of Bach and just listening to the D minor partita of Bach and just being transfixed and wondering, how does that happen out of one instrument? You know, I was this kid just listening to this stuff. And that was something I kept kept going back to and back to. And then 
through that series, you know, every month or so we'd get one of these things, you know, Tchaikovsky or Grieg or something. Um, and then I joined a record club and started to order, you know, music of my own, which was maybe a little bit more adventurous than that. I wonder, are there record clubs anymore? Because now we have MP3s, we have these curated playlists and things. Are there any, is there such a thing as a record club anymore? Well, if there are, they're they're not making very good money, I wouldn't think. <laughs> I, yeah, probably not. <laughs> I'd say not. Um, yeah, everything's so free now. I mean, everything is online and I, I don't I don't think, I think that's one of the big abiding problems um, of of being a, a new music or or composer or or even in commercial music is you just can't you can't make any any money out of out of recordings anymore um Mm -hmm. so it it really means that you have to have a a really different reason for for recording you know for um your just your catalog getting it in order and that's that's kind of why i record and why a lot of composers do i think and just to make sure it's down you know um yeah but then uh to distribute the stuff is really rather easy too. I have a record company and we distribute all over the world through through Naxos to hundreds of different, you know, download sites um, and streaming sites, mostly streaming, but some, you know, high definition download sites and things like that. So, um, you know, I think that right now we're in a very interesting phase with, with music recording and, and merchandising and marketing for a, for a composer and i think with with new music in particular it's 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 tremendously vexed um but in another way um kind of the same because we we've never made any money from this so. <laughs> you don't you don't become a, a composer uh, nowadays for that's, it to become right. rich <laughs> well the first piece we're going to take a listen to is your piece drift for solo oboe and strings what do we need to know about this piece before we listen um, this is one of, um, the pieces that, uh, is influenced by nature for me and particularly clouds and, and, and cloud patterns. So when I was a kid growing up in St. Louis, um, the Midwest in the summer has these, uh, massive, uh, billowing clouds that just kind of slowly move, uh, against the sky. And, uh, when I was a little kid, I know, you know, eight or nine, um, I would lay out on the porch in the summer because it was too hot in the house and just watch these clouds go by. Um, and I, with this piece, I wanted to try and replicate that, that feeling of, of movement, but stasis or, or like super slow movement where it seems like things aren't quite moving. Um, but also the, the peaceful stillness that was, that was there for me during that time too.
That was Douglas Gaines' Drift, Concerto for Solo Oboe and Strings, Vladislav Borovska on Oboe with the Bruno Philharmonic Orchestra, Mikhail Toms conducting. That recording can be found on the 2015 Ablaze Records CD, and the music can be found at Armadillo Publishing. Douglas, that's your publishing company, is that right? That's right, yeah. You can uh, hit it through Armadillo Edition or just hit my website, uh, either, and you can find it. So Douglas, uh, we all know that music has this incredible power to evoke emotion in us, (laughs) but no one has ever quite figured out why or how that works. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some people say that emotion in music is just a construct or even just a language, which is kind of a construct that we have learned to respond to. Do you think emotion in music is real? Uh, Yes, uh, most emphatically I do. Um, I I do think, though, there's um, a a lot of things that are said about emotion in music that don't really seek to address the question, like Stravinsky just saying, you know, after after writing Symphony of Psalms, oh no, I don't believe in any emotion in music. It's, it's just it's all just it's all just sound, he says. So I mean that's you know the bunkum does not start with him. Um but I think because of the 20th century, we we've lost the connection with with emotion in music. You know, it's become over the course of like the post-war period uh, with musical modernism in particular, um, it's, it's become this, this kind of no, no, we mustn't talk about it. We must, we certainly must not seek to do anything about it. Uh, And we, we need to create um, strong intellectual constructs in music and talk about aesthetics and um, the social place of music and, and all this other stuff, which I have always kind of felt is peripheral to the, the central power of music, which is its ability to cut through exactly all of that and reach straight into a person and um, speak, you know, human truths. And the difficulty with trying to express that uh, in words especially to try and maybe even talk about it in a symposium or in a teaching situation, uh, is that there's a a kind of a psycho-emotional aspect to emotion in music that isn't directly about sound so much, although sound is its vehicle. Uh, And so if you you think of maybe opera composers and the, the really successful ones who understand about the human condition more you know people like people like mozart who really understood human psychology uh you know the reason why i think his operas are so great is not just because the music is great it's because he captures the emotion of those characters and the the psychology of those characters so adroitly and in a way that that lesser composers just can't do. They write the same music for everyone. It's kind of a flat mm-hmm. and, and very accomplished, you know, musical statement, but it is not mm-hmm. really a, 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 an emotional or a psycho-emotional statement. So, you know, I think there, these are, these are dual paths that can, you know, uh, converge and be very meaningfully uh, uh, powerful when they do. But uh, very frequently, um, I think we're taught to run away from them and just just talk about the the technique you know 
Yeah, I think, you know, some composers like Samuel Barber kind of do both really well. They they switch back and forth because just like us, music can switch be- between the heart and the head. And we can live in both our heart and our emotions and in our head. So eschewing one, you know, pre- preferring one over the other is kind of unbalanced in a way. And, and you're avoiding and missing some opportunities to explore other aspects of of our lives. I absolutely agree. And I, I would go maybe even a little further and say that um, it's it's about heart and, and head and ear and viscera. You know, it's really about the, the this whole of body uh, response um, to to a piece of music. You know, I think that a lot of people um, will uh, say not flattering things about composers like Tchaikovsky, for example, you know, and um, when you when you look at that music and and look at how he will or, or did uh, con- construct um, especially quick music, you know, fast music and, and how how that actually is is working. Um, you know, there's a, a level on which that isn't emotional or really intellectual. It's just pure kind of gut level dance music. And um, I think that is a really important part of music too. The piece we just heard, Drift, is about kind of a, 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 um, a salve or, a, or a, um, a, a, a tender kind of hug to the viscera, you know, in, mm-hmm. that, in, that, in that piece. And I, I think though it's, it's also, I hope, uh, also, you know, pretty and also kind of poignant. So I, in all of my music, seek to really engage the whole person um, from kind of the, the guts on up um, and not just the the, um, the eyeballs up. <laughs> this is a great transition for us to your next piece, Tempest, which is a concerto for flute and orchestra. And we want to take a listen to this in just a moment, but I would love to hear you explain a little bit about it before we get into it, especially coming out of a conversation regarding viscera and feeling music the way we're talking about. Mm. Uh, this piece um, was uh, requested by a colleague of mine and who ultimately uh, did not play it because uh, he told me to write. So I'm a flute player by training, so um, I know the instrument very well. And know what is easy and what is difficult and uh the fellow who asked for the work said i'll play anything just you know write anything as hard as you want i'll play it so i i did i wrote a really hard piece and um he ultimately did not play it um (laughs) it was too hard (laughs) but it was too hard Um, but uh i did uh um befriend the uh, principal flute of the london symphony orchestra to um uh, come to Brno and, and record the piece, and he learned it. We recorded it in a morning, so he was pretty incredible. But this piece, what what lies behind it is that when I thought about writing a a flute concerto, I mean, what what lies at the heart of the flute, of course, is is wind, and to keep the music going, and uh, that got me thinking about the natural world again, and wind patterns, and various different types of wind uh, around the world, and. So the more I kind of researched it, the more I, 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 I set on these three types of wind 
that would characterize uh, each movement, and that's really what the what the piece is about.
titled Tempest by Douglas Nihans, Gareth Davies on the flute, and the Bruno Philharmonic Orchestra. Mikkel Toms, conductor. I'm curious, Douglas, how does a flutist from London, a composer from America, end up recording together in the Czech Republic? Yeah, interesting question. Um, well, my friend and conductor, uh, Mikkel uh, Toms, um, comes and records with us every every summer um, in Brno. Um, and it was through him that I, I met Gareth because he and Gareth, I think, started flute together as young as young guys. Um, and so he's known Gareth pretty much his whole life. Um, and I was telling him about this concerto and he said, you should get Gareth to come and record it. And I said, really? You think he would? And he said, yeah, well, ask him. <laughs> so, um, so I did. He put me in touch with him, and I, and I asked him, and he said, let me see the music. And then when he knew it was a challenge, he, he said, oh, sure, I'll, I'll come and do it. So that's how it, that's how it all happened that we wound up there. Um, and as, as it turns out, uh, Gareth likes a good beer, so that, that worked out really well. Too. <laughs> the Czech Republic has such an amazing music culture. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there since you go there so often and record? Yes. Uh, well, um, you know, it's well known for its string playing for a start. And uh, and it's a well-deserved reputation, too, because uh, the string playing is 
amazing. The, the players are just phenomenal, uh, both technically brilliant, but also there's a, a warmth to their sound and a, and a um, musicality to their to their phrasing that is just so gorgeous. The the Brno Philharmonic was um, Janacek's orchestra, and so um, they uh, are well versed in um, playing Janacek's music in particular. And I think what's interesting is um, there's a kind of a a roughness they bring to Janicek. Like when you hear the Berlin Philharmonic or the New York Philharmonic play Janicek, it's all wrapped up in pretty ribbons and it's really smoothed over and gorgeous and uh, not not so much with um, with the Brno orchestra or with Czech orchestras in, in general. They they know that it's it this kind of rough edge is quite characteristic of, of the music of Janicek. And so... Um, when they play it, it's really powerful, man. It's um, not withheld or restrained at all. And yet, when it's called for, uh, they can certainly bring that in in spades too. And I love working with these musicians. They um, are really, really um, committed and deeply nice. You know, we we go with my company and record new music six hours a day for five or six days a week, and at the end of that period, um, you know, many musicians would be pulling their hair out with, you know, all the complexities of new music, right? And um, mm-hmm. not these guys. There is there is sunny and open and warm uh, on the very last day of recording as they are on the first day. And it's really a joy to work with them. Douglas, what is the meaning of Astro, the title of the first movement of your flute concerto? Right. That's that's one of the winds. It's, uh, it's a kind of turbulent... Um, wind that that is a bit unpredictable and and unsteady um and so i thought that would be a good a good opening opening one the um the the second movement of the of the concerto um is about a, a somber kind of um slight winter wind uh, and the the last movement is about a strong constant sailing wind uh and so the, the, the nature of the music is, is kind of reflected in, in those wind patterns. I like that. And do you typically look at nature as a source for meaning in many of your compositions? Well, you, you know, Tarek, increasingly I, I kind of do, and, but I have been for about the last 10 or 12 years, I, I guess. And I, I think it's because in, in nature there's, such diversity i mean if you if you look at anything from a snowflake to a tree to um you know wave patterns uh these things are kind of similar um like one snowflake is kind of like another and yet uniquely different right one leaf is kind of like another but uniquely different and i think the um uh, endless kind of variety but uh the organic unity of of nature really uh, inspires me. But more than that, I think it it um, is a kind of a a complexity about about nature that kind of externalizes or or is a kind of um, external mirror to the internal complexity of of human beings and and our own you know psycho emotional states. And so this kind of inner and outer world. Uh, counterpart uh, is something that 
I'm really I'm really drawn to with using you know, nature as a metaphor for the human condition a little bit. You seem you uh, especially obsessed with air, and hmm. maybe that's because you're a flutist. Uh, the next <laughs> composition <laughs> that we're going to talk about is called Falling Air, and it was written for an unusual instrument called a shang. What yeah. is a shang, and how did you end up composing for this instrument? Um, I was uh, commissioned for this piece. Um, for a, a concert at, at Carnegie Hall for a, 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 a celebration of Chinese music. And um, we were asked to write a piece for a Western ensemble with one or two Chinese instruments in addition. And uh, I, I chose this, this Qing because I thought that it might work nicely with the, with the group, which was a flute, clarinet, uh, piano, percussion, violin, and cello. And I thought, what would work with that? And there, there are a lot of, a lot of Chinese instruments that, that would work with that group, but I was particularly interested in something that would, where I could exploit different types of blend. And so I, I thought of this, it, it is really a, a, a kind of a harmonica, kind of a, mm. kind of a mouth organ, but, um, it's got long reed pipes, so it looks like a, a, a cobbled together um, set of, of sticks that, that is about, oh, maybe two feet tall. And you, you blow in and out just like you would on a harmonica. Um, so you, you never have to breathe because you breathe in and out through the instrument. Um, and, you, and you play it uh, with little holes at the bottom. There's about three or four holes at, at the bottom on each side. Uh, and to learn how to write for this instrument was really a little bit of a challenge. Um, and I was so nervous about it. And um, I wrote this piece and um, we got together with um, this Sheng player and the guy couldn't, couldn't play the piece at all. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh no. my God, I've really messed up. This is a nightmare. And it turns out that it, it wasn't me. It was the guy. Mm-hmm. And so they, they found uh, another player, uh, Hu Jianbing, uh, who is from uh, the Silk Road Ensemble and can really, really play. That's a fantastic and, ensemble. Yeah, and he's a Such fan- a fan. He's a fantastic Shen player. This this man is he's just genius. And so we started working together and he was just brilliant from the first time we sat down. And then after the first rehearsal, um, said to me, you know, you write you write better for this instrument than most Chinese composers. And I'm like, what? That's, <laughs> so that's a nice was, compliment. That's, it, that's awesome. It was really a turnaround from my my very first experience where I thought, you know, this is a disaster. I really messed up <laughs> to, <laughs> to the other end where, where he was complimenting me. So it was a, it was a really nice uh, experience in the end. This is Falling Air for Sextet and Shang, performed by Hu John Bing on Shang and the All of the Above Ensemble, William R. Langley, conductor.
the music we've been listening to in this episode is from the Ablaze record label. And that's your record label, Douglas. And I wanted to ask you how you got started with this label and, and what are the business side of these things? Yeah, well, two, two complex questions. <laughs> uh, the, the, the answer to the first is that I was, um, it's a, a kind of roundabout story. I was director of a conservatory um, in Australia at the time uh, and the government brought in a new um, set of um, guidelines for academic research. And at the, at the first uh, instance of this, it left out the performing arts altogether. So all of my friends at the art school, all of our musician colleagues, you know, these mm. people were all left out of the research agenda. Um, so after a lot of pushback all across the country, um, they decided that they would start to include, um, you know, if you published a composition or a, a paper in a music journal um, or a CD, um, that it would count towards your um, research record. The problem was that we were in Tasmania and not a lot of people were, were recording. And so I thought, I'll set up a record company and have our faculty and graduate students just record and we'll release it through my company and they'll get research credit for it. Um, so that's how it got started. But about six months after it got started, I got a new job and so um, and came back to the United States. Uh, so we published a couple of discs to start with, and then it, it kind of went slow um, for a few years and then uh, started to pick up uh, steam again. And shortly thereafter, I, I said to my partner and wife in the, in the business, you know, I really want to record orchestral music. She was nervous because of the, the cost of it, you know, and we did launch the first disc and uh, now we're on our, I think, eighth disc of, of orchestral new music. Uh, and a few of those have been double discs. So, you know, it's it's been a really great journey and I've met a lot of really wonderful composers and got to work with a lot of wonderful musicians, you know, uh, through it too. So that's how the label got, got started. Is that the primary way for people to listen to your music? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I'm, I'm on a, a number of other labels too, um, uh, like Crystal Records and SCI Records and, you know, a number of other labels. If you hit my website, uh, all my recordings are, are there. But I will say that it's, it's handy and less expensive than other options. And I get to uh, retain the intellectual property um, in the, in the work and the recording. So um, that's with a big some, deal. It is a big, deal. a big deal. I mean, with yeah. some, with some contracts, you, you not only pay to do the recording, but then you, you pay the company um, mm -hmm. for the privilege of, giving them your intellectual property. So, well, was, it's, you, know, you hear like Taylor Swift is having this big, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, she has these perennial arguments with her publishing companies and right, um, right. record well, companies. It, it, it happens uh, in the classical genre mm -hmm. too, I'm afraid. And um, I just felt like, you know, I'm not really prepared to fork out to pay for the recording and then give that property to someone else. And what's more, once they have it, they can decide, oh, you know what? We've had a board meeting and um, yeah, we're not going to publish that anymore. 
And then, but you, but you can't go ahead and publish it if they've correct, stopped publishing it. Yeah. They, they own it. So they right. own it. Yeah, so that's really hard. And I've, I've had a number of colleagues who have had that experience, uh, not with my label, obviously, but with other labels where they've done really great recordings. They're locked in the vault. They just can't get their hands mm-hmm. on. So uh, Douglas, what are you working on right now? I'm finishing a, a piece for two pianos and two percussion for... Um, the amazing Icarus Quartet from Baltimore. Um, they're four young guys and they they are just monster players. So I'm really, really excited uh, to be uh, finishing that commission off. Just before that, I, I finished a, a piece for String Quartet and Cymbalom for the really great American Cymbalom player, Chester Englander. Um, I don't know if you know of Chester, but he's... Um, if ever you see a, a John Adams uh, Scheherazade 2.0, uh, there's a symbolum in that, and it will be Chester playing it. <laughs> um, so um, it's a pretty unusual instrument. It's a great instrument, yeah. and you know it, it kind of uh, relates back to um, Czech Republic too, because it's in that part of the world, Hungary and and uh, uh, the Eastern European uh, area, where the symbolum really has uh, got its. Uh, got its start. So, um, you know, for people it, who don't know what it is, what, can you describe it just to, for, a, for a moment? It's a hammered dulcimer. So, um, it's kind of like, um, do you remember in, in school we used to have like an auto harp? It's, it's kind of like a, a, a very big version of that. It's got, it's got strings that go across, um, you know, horizontally and, and a bridge on either side. So, uh, a string will slope from one side to the other. Uh, and so you have these two kind of um, angled playing surfaces of strings and you, you play them with um, little uh, leather mallets. Um, so it's almost as if you open a piano and start to, to hit it with a, with a, um, a timpani mallet or something like that. It's a, it's a, it's a little bit similar to that. So you're, you're hitting a string uh, with quite a lot of force, and it, it makes a, a clangorous, um, really beautiful sound. Um, well, can't wait to hear it. Yeah, yeah, I can't either. I, I, this, this was meant to be um, premiered this month, uh, and that didn't happen. And so um, they've delayed the premiere for next April, um, and I hope that things are opened up enough that we can actually make that happen. But, well, keep in touch and let us yeah, know. I certainly will do that. What's going on? Yeah, I will. The last piece we're going to listen to um, this evening is Unfinished Earth. Um, and this is a very large scale dramatic work. Now, for me, the, when I first listened to this, I thought, okay, if this was a wine, how would I characterize it? I would <laughs> characterize it as very brass forward, heavy on the dissonance, especially at the beginning. But then it kind of, it really, you know, it, it has a lot of complex flavors going through. So, um, you want to just take a moment and tell us what this piece is about and what we need to be listening for? Yeah. Um, this piece came about, um, a, a colleague of mine asked me for a new orchestra work um, at, at CCM where I teach. And um, I said, well, what do you want? He said, whatever you want to do, just do it. Um, and so I, I said, can I, can I write a big, like symphonic multi-movement piece? And, and he said, yeah. So I decided, I was going through a, a pretty tough, period in my life at that time. 
you know, things uh, change internally. You know, there's there's a point in everyone's life where there's a before and after, you know, where something so big has happened to you, um, you know, maybe your house burned down or you, you lost a partner or whatever, uh, but something where you definitely think of your life as it was before that and after that. And mm -hmm. so this was an event of that kind of depth. And so it, it gave rise to this notion in, in me of rebirth or, or regeneration after such an event. And my thoughts naturally turned to the natural world and, and how the earth regenerates and, and reforms itself. And so that's what the first movement is about, this kind of regeneration. Um, and it's called tempering. And tempering is a process um, where the earth is formed out of, out of molten rock or molten lava. Um, when that hits the sea uh, and, and cools off, that, that cooling off and, and forming into something hard uh, is a process called tempering. Uh, the, the second movement is a, um, a movement that is about the kind of emotional undercurrents in, in our lives. And I, I thought of water again and, and, and of um, currents uh, under, under the water, how they can pull you in, in one direction, even be in, in working in opposite directions to the surface water. Um, and so that, that movement is called uh, Eternal Ocean. And then the last movement is um, about continental drift and, and the earth kind of pulling apart, tugging at itself, and, and again, in an effort to, to reshape itself. And that movement's called Tearing Drift. Well, Douglas, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us today on the Composer Studio. It's been really great meeting you and getting a chance to listen to your music and learn more about it. Uh, thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you guys, too. Thank you. You have been listening to the music of Douglas Neans on Composer Studio. If you've enjoyed the show today, please take a moment and leave us a review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We welcome your feedback. We are now going to close with The Unfinished Earth. This is the third movement. Tearing Drift, performed by the Brno Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Mikkel Toms.
Are you a composer or an organization that supports living composers? We are currently scheduling guests and seeking sponsors for our 2021 season. So feel free to reach out to us if you or your organization want to be featured. Visit our website at www.composerstudio.net and click the contact tab. Thank you for listening to The Composer's Studio, available wherever you get your podcasts. And keep listening to the music of today.